This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 27th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The American experience with shelter-in-place orders, or so-called lockdowns, driven by the spread of COVID-19 has been relatively lax. In Ecuador, the lockdown has been a lot closer to what the name ought to imply. And good luck getting non-essential services like refrigerator repair. Cato's Gabriela Calderon lives in Ecuador. We spoke last week. What's the difference between what Americans think of as a lockdown in a pandemic and your experience? Well, I think it's worthwhile explaining uh, how how different lockdowns can be and and what they mean in different countries. In the case of Ecuador, it has not, first of all, we have a very centralized administration. So the president uh, quarantined basically the whole country. It's a mandatory quarantine. So, and, and it includes the suspension of public transportation throughout the whole country. You could not cross uh, state lines. Uh, and this has been in place since March 17th. And it has begun relaxing uh, o- o- across the past week. And this week, uh, Guayaquil, the largest city in the country, is going into what we call yellow traffic light. We're using this uh, traffic light system going from red to yellow to green. And uh, it's a way of uh, a system to signal reopening measures, what can be done at every certain stage. And so about 50 cities, including the largest one in the country, are opening up back up again for business. That includes malls, uh, restaurants, um, and public transportation, all of them with uh, limited um, ability to include uh, passengers and clients. So, for example, restaurants are going to be operating at a 50% capacity, public transportation at 50% capacity, and so forth. All right. So uh, what what was the experience initially in uh, mid-March? How, what changed in Ecuador? You know, a lot of things changed almost overnight in the United States. What changed overnight in Ecuador? Well, overnight, uh, there was uh, the only services and production that could continue had to be strictly related to food production and distribution. So our lockdown, uh, as opposed to the one in the United States, uh, included only the delivery of food and the distribution of food. So uh, an official estimate says that 70% of the economy was shut down. And this is a country that was already in a fiscal crisis. And, and that 30% is related to uh, food exports, food production, and food distribution. And, and this is different because, for example, if you were locked down and you needed uh, your freezer broke down or your air conditioner broke down and you needed to have, the, you, you wanted to purchase a new one, you could not have that legally delivered to your house. There was no way to legally purchase anything that wasn't food online or via apps until uh, two weeks ago. About a month ago, they realized that the businesses producing food had machines that were breaking down. And so they allowed mechanics to go back into work so that they could keep producing food and distributing food. And so little by little, they have been opening up. But that on the flip side of that is that while they were refusing to do that, there's a huge informal sector of the economy, like six out of 10 Ecuadorians work in the informal sector. And they basically uh, earn daily wages. So they really never stop going out on the streets. So in certain poor neighborhoods, you had people going to the markets and going out and selling stuff in the streets every day. 
what happened at the end of March was that uh, deaths started jumping above the normal daily average. And uh, the numbers were so large and, and the level of testing was so low that people didn't really have um, a hold on what was going on or if the quarantine was working because the testing was so low. And so uh, in the case of Guayaquil, which was the most affected area in the country, we had 10,000 deaths above uh, normal average between the end of March and the beginning of April. That's uh, in the course of 40 days. So uh, how differently do treat people treat a government order then uh, to stay at home and not get anything but food delivered or any number of other restrictions on movement? Well, if you think of, uh, it depends on income levels. If, if you think of people on the lower uh, income levels, uh, they do not have enough uh, reserves to purchase uh, food supplies for, let's say, a week. Not even, I mean, not even talking about doing it twice a month. So basically they go to the market most, most days and, and they go uh, walking because there was no public transportation. Uh, this was very complicated for rural towns where even uh, some rural towns uh, damaged roads out of fear that someone would bring in the virus from the large towns. This is uh, very medieval, but, but this is what was going on. So you had these smaller rural towns where people were basically living off of uh, their produce, what they could get from their own land, their own plots of lands. And then in the large cities, it's a bit different because people were just going out every day into these street markets. And in those street markets, of course, it's very uh, impractical to enforce the social distancing. If you go to the higher income levels, then it's going to look more and more like what you have in the United States. You're going to have lines that have uh, social distancing marks on the floor. You're going to have someone spray you with some type of disinfectant before you go into the supermarket. They're going to give you free gloves. They're not going to let you in if you're not wearing a face mask. So it's very, um, uh, very similar to what you have in the United States. It, it, even in some parts, in, in like Quito and Guayaquil, there are supermarkets that have enabled an app that allows you to uh, pick up a slot. And so then you don't have to wait in line. You basically wait in your car. And when it's your appointment time, then you go into the supermarket. So how do you evaluate the performance of the private sector and the public sector in adapting to this hopefully short-term reality? Well, it's... Uh... It's interesting because those businesses that never closed are in the food processing sector, for example. And there you have uh, very intense manual labor. Uh, there's a lot of workers. You have uh, businesses that have, have up to 5,000 workers coming in and out every day. And, and those, some of those uh, businesses, they never stopped because they were allowed to keep working. And it's really amazing to see all the all the work they have done to adapt to this new reality. Some of them already had uh, stringent cleanliness procedures because, you know, they work on the food industry. So that's already uh, a given in that particular sector, but they stepped it up. So for example, they have uh, lunch areas where their workers go to have a lunch and they instituted uh, acrylic screens and they uh, spaced it out. They created more shifts for working and also for eating. So some workers will go in uh, an hour earlier and leave an hour earlier so that they never uh, 
meet up with the next shift of workers. Uh, they also do uh, temperature screenings several times a day, every time someone comes out and out of the plant. Um, they also do rapid tests uh, uh, fairly frequently, about once a week from in one of these enterprises that process shrimp, for example. And they also have uh, hired doctors. So uh, telemedicine is experiencing a boom here. So most uh, and most companies, if they have, for example, more than 100 employees, they'll start hiring a doctor on call to be on call available 24-7 to other workers. See, what happened here is that uh, it's a very hot, humid climate and a lot of buildings are um, heavily air conditioned. So that uh, constant flow between going outside into the steaming hot weather and then back in into the cranked up AC is the perfect recipe to get uh, frequent common colds. And what happened at the beginning of this crisis in, in February and March is that people thought, oh, this is just a common cold. And they were not reporting the early symptoms, which turned out to be a big mistake. So now people are more cautious in reporting early symptoms. And, and I think that's going to improve uh, the treatment uh, quite fairly. So for most people, or the average person, I should say, um, how seriously do they take these government mandates? Well, I mean, I think people are scared. You know, it was uh, uh, it was so bad. The the hand it was so incompetent and inefficient. The handling of the testing and tracing initially, and also you had a very uh, limited capacity in the health system. So it was very quickly overwhelmed. If you think about it, deaths above average began in March 21st. And already uh, by March 30th, you couldn't get a bed in any of the public hospitals in the city. So it only took about 10 days for it to be overwhelmed. And the worst of the crisis was reached on April 6th, when more than 400 people died that day. And then you have a problem of bureaucracy, just the sheer bureaucracy of dealing with you know, bodies piling up. And that's what you saw in the news, you know, bodies on the streets and people complaining about having their dead in their living room for 10 days because there was no one to pick them up. So what happens is that um, it is a very bureaucratic process normally, which has been streamlined, streamlined because of the crisis uh, to get uh, to deal with the bodies. You normally have to have an ambulance from the Ministry of Health. You have to have someone from the attorney general come in and certify the, that the person is in fact dead. And you also need a police officer. So that's coordination between three national agencies so that the body can be picked up and you can get on with the funeral. And, and what happens is that the city doesn't have the tradition of cremating bodies. But because of COVID-19, that was the protocol. You had to cremate bodies. And there's very limited capacity in the cemeteries of Guayaquil to do that. So that was another thing that delayed dealing with the bodies. Is there a good news part of this story, Gabriela? Yes, yes. And I'm glad that we're talking about this uh, in, in May, because uh, by May 10th, which was uh, Mother's Day down here, I don't know if it coincides with U.S. Mother's Day, but uh, by May 10th, uh, the deaths per day had reached normal levels again. So between March 20th, and May 10th is like the we reached the peak and we went back to normal in terms of average daily deaths for the city of Guayaquil. The normal average is 38 deaths per day. Uh, the peak was reached on April 6th. And ever since April 6th, it just kept going down, down, down. 
And uh, people, even though people, uh, especially those in the informal economy, which is about half the population, have uh, started uh, even uh, every day more and more coming out, that has not uh, gone back up. So uh, testing has expanded, testing capacity. Uh, the capacity of the hospitals in terms of ICUs, beds, and ventilators has also grown quite significantly. Uh, so I, I think cities that were not the focus of the infection, like Quito, Cuenca, and Puerto Viejo, have uh, prepared more because they saw how bad it can be. Uh, and also, uh, I think that despite the fact that you have three weeks of people going back to work uh, informally or illegally, and now this week legally, and you still see deaths coming down, I think that's a really good sign. Also, the good news is that they have done serological studies that tried to gauge how, uh, what percentage of the population was infected, and it's, it's huge. Uh, the, the lowest number is 32% of the inhabitants of Guayaquil, and the highest estimate is between 40% and 50% of the population. So if that is true, we would be really close to gaining what is called the herd immunity. And that would, be, that would mean that it is very less likely that we're going to have a tougher second wave. Uh, is there, is there, are there any stories that are in particular that are uh, notable uh, with respect to Ecuador? Well, yeah, the, the, there's a lot of there's been uh, scandals pretty much every day in terms of uh, purchasing public purchases of masks and antibacterial and how they have been uh, denounced for purchasing masks uh, for twelve dollars a unit, the N95 masks, when you can get them in the you can get them in the street for like two dollars fifty. But the government tried to purchase them at $12 per unit. So that there's a lot of that going on. Uh, you have a very centralized health administration system that does these purchases. And while the hospitals in Guayaquil were lacking basic things like face masks and antibacterial soap, even for their staff, um, you had hospitals that had warehouses filled with those materials in other parts of the country. And, and at some point, a hospital even found a hundred respirators, a uh, hundred ventilators without use in the middle of the crisis. They were like, oh, we didn't even know this was here. So, so it's a, a very, uh, mismanaged, uh, corrupt system. And, you know, a crisis reveals all, all the defects. It exposes them more, uh, more to the light. And, and people were, you know, uh, are realizing the need to streamline the system and to reform it. So, so I think that's, uh, that's going to be good for us, that, that people are going to learn from this crisis, the inefficiency of, of these agencies and the type of system we have. Gabriela Calderon is a research associate at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>